This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, April 5th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. When local governments attempt to make progress in some area of policy, like criminal justice, state governments sometimes preempt those local governments by prohibiting that behavior. Rachel Barco is a professor of law at NYU School of Law and author of Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration. We talked about preemption and what that means for criminal justice reform. In the past year, I'm speaking to you from just outside of Louisville, Kentucky, my hometown for many years, and we've watched the Breonna Taylor case come and go and all of the twists and turns associated with that. And of course, I'm sure Minneapolis has had a a similar experience that I haven't followed quite as closely. But how do cities react when the demand is very strong for some sort of criminal justice reform and the capital far away uh, isn't interested in acting? What real flexibility do cities have to engage in reform? It depends. It depends on... um you know, whether they think they'll get pushback from the state. It depends whether they think there's enough local appetite to do things. So we're seeing a variety of responses to things from pretty big efforts to lower the funding that's given to a local police department to trying to get the state to pass broader reforms that would apply statewide to policing practices. Um, So it's really a range of things. But, um, you know, I think what we're starting to see now is some tension between local communities that want to go further um, in defunding their police, in shifting budgets to social services, and state-level actors who don't want to see that happen. And at the end of the day, that the state is probably going to win those battles. Just to give you a, a reasonably local example, the city of Louisville essentially ended the use of no-knock warrants, uh, even though Um, these warrants don't appear to be all that necessary when police decide to kick in a door. Um, But uh, the state uh, had an opportunity to make other changes, including eliminating qualified immunity for public officials, among other uh, reforms, and then just didn't take it up, you know, but local governments exist at the pleasure of states. So uh, what happened? What's, what's a best practice for a city or a state that would like to engage in substantial reform of uh, policing and public safety to allow there to be some sort of local control, but also understanding that this state has an important role to play. Yeah, I think that it's important to recognize just how local policing is. You know, I mean, it's hard to imagine a function that really gets closer to community sentiment than policing, right? They're interacting every day with residents of those communities. So no one feels it like the people who live there. And so you really want to keep policing practices, I think, locally controlled. Let the communities that are being policed decide what they're comfortable with. Let them decide how they want to spend the money and how they think it's wise. And so I think, you know, in an ideal world, state governments should recognize that they want to give maximum local flexibility and support to communities to decide what works best for them. You know, that's the ideal world. Uh, the, the real world is one where, you know, this is a big political issue with all kinds of overlapping concerns, including racial justice ones. And, you know, a lot of these local communities that we're talking about are urban centers that have larger populations of black and brown people versus state legislators, which are going to be, you know, overwhelmingly white. 
and also thinking about constituents that live in rural areas, suburban areas. And so you start to get politics thrown into this mix. And the local concerns may be very much the real ones on the ground worries of the people who live there. Whereas you get these state actors who are just thinking, I can score some abstract political points with people throughout my state by showing I'm going to stick it to these liberal urban centers that you know don't know what they're doing. And I think that's the danger here is we're going to get bad policies because of the politics as opposed to what actually would make sense in these communities. I was speaking with uh, John Pfaff recently, and uh, a, a point that he made that I think is should be very well taken is that even at the local level, sometimes uh, there is this sort of bifurcation of people who are policed more and people who, uh, in larger numbers, vote for more policing. Uh, and and yet do not largely face that consequence. And and then when you extend that out between urban centers and state capitals, which sometimes are remote, small places, uh, rep- you know, with vast rural populations, uh, that can be even more striking. Absolutely, it's it's really the politics couldn't really be more different in so many of our states because you could have a relatively relative to the state liberal urban center that is probably going to have, you know, the greatest amount of policing because it's going to have the greatest amount of crime and the need for it um, versus the overall state, which is way more likely to lean Republican and conservative, not everywhere, but, you know, in a lot of places that we're talking about, that's the dynamic, you know, you have Nashville versus Tennessee, you know? (laughs) Um, And so that dynamic means that even if the local community decides, Hey, you know, taking into account all of our interests here, it really would make sense for us to think about shifting police dollars to something else or making some other change that the state may just want to prevent that. Um, even though, frankly, you know, you could ask yourself, why does the state care? It's the local budget. It's, you know, when we're talking about defunding efforts and like, you know, that's really a question of local budgeting. Um, so for the state to step in in a context like that one, you know, then I think it, you really see the politics of it. Um, the, the fact that the state feels that they're going to kind of barge in and, we're seeing more and more of it, though, I will say, across issues. It's not limited to criminal justice issues. You know, this has obviously been a huge uh, issue of, you know, state preemption with COVID and the pandemic and, you know, what local communities can do with masks, what the state can do. Um, so the tensions exist across a range of issues, minimum wage laws, labor protections, you name it. Um, so, you know, now we're just seeing it more in the criminal justice space because in the past, you know, it had typically been, frankly, Local communities were harsh, states were harsh, everybody got along. (laughs) And it's only now that you're starting to see the divergence between what the local communities want, that that the tension is coming to the fore. What are some examples of where we've seen the state preempt local governments with, you know, whatever the results uh, happened in the criminal justice context? Oh, in the criminal justice space. Um, well, so we've had, uh, I, I'm trying to, I, I know we've had some local communities that have wanted to do more with gun bans, and I can't off the top of my head name the jurisdictions, but, you know, they've wanted to be more Well, Chicago is one, certainly, right? Um, and the state steps in and says no. 
you know, you, you can't do that. Um, you know, the, the non-criminal examples that had come to mind for me were things like minimum wage. So, you know, you'd have a city like um, Birmingham wanted to set a minimum wage and Alabama says, no, you can't do it. Um, with criminal justice, it's mainly, it hasn't come up as much as I said, because, you know, for the most part, we're talking about state criminal laws that, you know, apply locally and the way they get tailored to local circumstances tends to be with the discretion of police officers and prosecutors deciding how to prioritize and enforce them. So you get that kind of local application through discretionary enforcement. So for the most part, when it's been a question of of criminal justice policies, it's been things like um, gun laws, maybe some drug decriminalization efforts, that kind of thing. But, but you know, for those kinds of things, if the state wants to step in um, and preempt, you know, typically there's really not much the local jurisdiction can do. And, you know, the wrinkle with the defunding efforts, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about now is so what, you know, in the past, what local communities have tried to do as I say, is, is kind of, you know, ban certain things. Like, you know, you can't have guns in this, in our community kind of, uh, or certain types of guns, open carry or what have you. Um, with the, and so the state can just decide to preempt that. What's weird about the defunding efforts is that, you know, the local budget is just the local budget. You know, they have their tax base. And so it's not that the state can really, tell these local communities how to spend their money. But the way they can do it is they can say, we're going to stop giving you money because these local governments really do depend on state support. And so, you know, my understanding with the way that most of the states that are threatening to stop defunding efforts, what they're doing is they're not saying, you know, you have to spend X dollars because they really can't do that because the states um, can't control how much money and revenue the local budgets raise. But what they're saying is, look, if you're going to cut your police budget by more than X percent, whatever the state says it is, then we're going to stop giving you state funding. Um, you know, you'll lose necessary state funds that you need. And, you know, that's enough to scare a local community into saying, you know, whatever we were going to save on our policing dollars to use for other things like social services, we'll lose so much more in our state dollars that it won't be worth it. And so the power of the purse is really the kind of key uh, mover when it comes to these policing reforms that that are the ones that are based on changing policing budgets. You know, the relationship between the feds and states, you have a federal law, you have state laws, uh, they are separate entities. They both are allowed to have their own laws with respect to something, as uh, somebody uh, put it, you know, when a state uh, legalizes marijuana or, or does sort of steps down with regard to enforcement of some criminal activity, all that means is you you did have two people punching you in the face and now you've just got one person punching you in the face, which is, if, let's all agree, that's preferable. Uh, but, you know, the, there's a big difference between that and a state government and a local government. But to the extent that a state government could say, uh, here's the state law, but you local government may make your own determinations and we state government will respect that. Uh, is there Are there examples of that where that's happened in either regulation or criminal justice? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, so you do have other states that have allowed their local 
um, you know, cities, local jurisdictions to set their own minimum wage policies, um, for example, um, other labor protections uh, that they'll have environmental laws, um, you know, banning plastic bags or insisting on um, tougher environmental restrictions than they would have statewide. So you actually have a fair amount of local flexibility to do things. And I think there is a trend, though, um, to having the states step in more. You know, there have been some recent studies out there that have shown states are being more robust in preempting local authority. And and I should I should mention at the outset that every state is a little bit different in terms of how they're set up constitutionally, in terms of how much control local communities and flexibility they have. So, you know, there's jurisdictions that are called home rule jurisdictions, which give their local uh, communities a little bit more autonomy um, versus uh, states that have a, a, a different setup where they really only have the authority vested in them by the state. And, you know, there's much tighter leash on how they operate. So lots of variation in terms of how the U.S. is set up this way. Um, but by and large, we have seen lots of local community variety in how places decide to set various policies. As I said, from a range of things to labor, to environmental um, and criminal justice type issues. But in the criminal justice space, it has mainly tended to be that the the way you see the local variation has been much less about we're going to have law X in city Y versus, you know, municipal code um, Z in this other city. And instead it's, no, we both operate under the same state law. Like everybody knows in our state, you know, marijuana is illegal, but the difference is in our city, we're just not making that a priority. You know, our police are just not arresting for it or our prosecutors just not bringing charges for it. And one of the things that's interesting is in addition to this new trend of having the states, you know, now starting to step in with these defunding efforts with the police, they're also becoming more aggressive when it comes to these discretionary decisions by local actors. So we've got a bunch of prosecutors now who've been elected around the country on progressive platforms of decarceration. And they've said, I'm not going to bring charges for certain types of crime. So in a place like Philadelphia, Larry Krasner has said, you know, he's going to bring certain kinds of gun cases, um, not others. And he's being very targeted in how he wants to do it. There, the, the state legislature has said, you know what we're going to do about that? we're going to give more authority to our state attorney general to prosecute those cases. So, you know, they are even trying to get around those discretionary decisions by saying, we'll give a state level actor, our attorney general, more authority to bring charges so that even when the local community is trying to get around our state laws by not bringing them, we'll have this other actor do it. And, and we're seeing that now. Missouri is doing the same thing. Um, they don't like the way that prosecutors in St. Louis are prioritizing various crimes. And so they want to give more authority to the AG. And you know, so that I would say that's another trend to be on the lookout for. Um, and in some ways, that's an even more disturbing one, honestly, um, is this idea of really trying to control not just the content of state law, but the way that discretion is exercised to enforce it around the various municipalities and counties. Um, you know, that that's that's to me, that's even more disturbing right? Because you're really getting rid of the flexibility for these local actors on the ground to respond to what they're seeing as the top priorities and you're taking that over too. Yeah, but I also can see the other side of that a little bit and that is, look, 
we have a set of laws on the books, and of course, prosecutors have discretion with, with respect to cases that they they want to bring. They they have to have that in order to uh, have a sort of just a coherent job description and set priorities for themselves. And, and I respect that too, but it does would feel like a bit of a slap in the face to the state government to the extent that a local government say, look, this law, it's not really a law here. Yeah, I think it depends on in part on um, how categorical the local prosecutor is speaking. You know, if it's if they're if they use and this is what's tricky for some of these elected prosecutors, right? On the one hand, they want to speak, I think, in sweeping language to get voters and to, you know, kind of mollify their progressive constituents that have brought them there, right? So they want to say things like, I'm not going to bring any cases for marijuana. Um, And when they speak in those categorical terms, I think that really raises the point that you're asking about, which is that looks like nullification of a state law, right? If on the other hand, what they were saying is, look, we have a lot of crime here and I want to prioritize the crime that is most critical to the threat and safety of my community. And so I'm going to prioritize my resources. So, you know, I may not get to all those marijuana charges because I'm busy worried about the shootings. Right. It's put in in budgetary language. That is, this is this is a matter of resources. This is not a matter of what I think is right and good. Right. Or, um, you know, it's it's a question of both limited resources. And, you know, in part, I should say, it is also the case that when you look at the circumstances of individual cases, it may be that the state legislature was thinking in broad brush terms, but the prosecutor on the ground can say, doesn't make sense to bring it here. Um, In this case, based on this person's circumstance, much better to divert this person to do other things. So for a range of reasons, we've always allowed prosecutors to do that. And if they were really kind of doing it on the down low and not talking about it, state legislature wouldn't even really know, honestly. <laughs> you know, basically, if they just decided, I'm going to come into office and I'm just going to kind of quietly not bring these cases anymore, but focus on these. The tension comes from the fact that these prosecutors have been very vocal about it in their campaigns. But that also means that it has this democratic accountability to it. Right. They're representing some local values. And the voters knew about it when they voted for them. You know, if you take someone like Rachel Rollins in Boston in Suffolk County, Massachusetts, she ran telling her voters, I'm not prosecuting low level retail thefts. I'm just not going to do it. You know, the office has way bigger priorities and I'm not bringing those cases. And she was criticized when she ran and the police department said, oh my gosh, you can't elect someone like this. This is horrible. And then she won. So, you know, on the one hand, you can say those voters made very clear they agree with her and they don't want those cases prioritized. You know, on the other hand, because she spoke in this categorical language, you know, it's very clear she's not bringing actions in a whole uh, you know, a whole slate of things. Now, Massachusetts has not sought to preempt her yet because, you know, the the composition of the state legislature isn't that different from uh, Suffolk County. Um, but, but, you know, that's the kind of play we're going to see around the country is, you know, how much is the legislature state level going to let these local prosecutors have room, you know, how much are they going to let the defunding and, and it's, it's politics. It's going to depend, you know, it's, it's a kind of red blue divide. Um, as I said, some of it is 
very much a question of race as well. Um, you know, it, it really is a pronounced kind of difference in terms of what these local urban um, voter populations look like versus the state level. Um, and so there's really no denying how much of this is about is about different views on these issues based on race. And so I think you also have tensions there. And, and notably, um, you know, there have been some studies that have pointed out preemption has been um, most aggressive and strongest in the South. Um, you know, the, the Southern states have been the ones that have engaged in the most robust forms of preemption across a range of issues. Again, you know, not just criminal justice, but minimum wage, environmental, um, much quicker to step in. Rachel Elise Barco is author of Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration. We spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.